Well, all right, guys, if you would, go ahead, grab your Bibles. If you forgot your Bible, it will be on the end of one of the rows. If you guys can get the lights on, that'd be great. Um, and then uh, as you are, oh, that, what I was going to say, if you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to keep that one uh, just as our gift to you guys. Uh, best thing we can do is be a people who are of the word. We'll be, you can see it behind me. We'll be in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3. You can start flipping there now. I was asking some kids before church this question. Um, which you got to be careful with. It kind of veers into heresy if you're not careful. I, I asked the kids, I said, if you were God, what would you have done differently? If you had God's power, if you were the creator, what would you have done differently? By, by far, one of my favorite moments I've hung out with kids in the past month. Uh, cute little girl, I won't use any names. Cute little girl looked at me and said, like, like barely even had to think about it. She was like, I'd get rid of all the people and there would only be unicorns. And I was like, what, really? She's like, get rid of all the people. And all we have is unicorns. And what was the best was there was a girl sitting right next to her. And the moment it came off her lips, she went, yeah, that, that's what we want. And then there was another girl there. And, and I asked, I said, well, why unicorns? Why do you want them? And, and, and she said, well, unicorns are just much more beautiful than people are. And that's just the way that I would want to go. And I was like, oh, okay, that's really cool. So I asked boys the question as well. Um, I related to the boys' answers uh, a little bit more than the girl answer. And one of them said, I would not want animals to be sacrificed. Asked somebody else, and they said, uh, if I was God, I would have helped Noah more with the ark. Now, I thought, okay, these are interesting answers. So I dug in a little bit. And it was sort of like looking through the peephole in a door. It's small. It doesn't look like there's much there. But once you look through it, there's this massive expanse. And so I'm really glad that I kind of picked at the thread. So I asked, and I said, why, why no sacrificing of animals? And what was best was this little boy. Like, he took a long time to think about it. Like, he was standing there, and he wasn't talking, but he was moving his lips. He was like, and then he closed his eyes. He was like, I was like, my goodness, like you're taking this, like this whole pastor thing seriously, all right? Like, I'm just chill, like hanging out with you. And he said, it just doesn't seem fair. Like, what did they do? Like, it, it doesn't seem fair. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's really good theology. Because the whole point of Christ is, it isn't fair. Like, grace and mercy isn't fair. We should see Christ on the cross, and one of our first responses should be, that doesn't make sense, that isn't right, that isn't fair. And that's what this little kid was bringing up about sacrifice. And so I dug deeper, and I asked, I was like, well, what about the Noah thing that you mentioned? And he said, it just seems like that's a lot of work to do. And he probably wanted to give up. He probably got really tired. And if I was God, I would want to pitch in and help. And I was like, that's such good theology about the outworking of being a Christian. It feels utterly impossible. It seems like an endless task that we are not able to do outside of Christ. And I was like, man, these kids, like, go kids ministry. They don't even know it, but they've got, like, deep seeds of theological truth and depth. So here is our text. I'm going to read through the first couple of verses, and you will see why I brought that up. What would you do if you were God? How would you have done things differently? 
1 Timothy 2, verse 3. This is good. Let me explain to this. If you weren't here last week, we talked primarily about prayer. That's how this chapter kicks off, that we should be praying diverse types of prayers for diverse types of people. This, praying for people, praying in numerous ways, is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. You ready? Here's the tough one. One of the hardest passages in the Bible. Pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, the moment I read this, my mind wants to go with, now, what on earth is that actually saying? If the, is the Bible actually saying that God desires the salvation of all people? And I want to get rationalistic, and I want to get logistic, and I want to think theologically about it. Is it saying literally every individual, because that brings some difficulties? Is it saying all types of people? And so I read this in my mind immediately. I don't know if that's how you guys read your Bible. Like you get two verses in, and then your mind just starts spinning, right? And you start chasing these theological rabbits. That's how, how I see this. But as I was working through it, I was like, whoa, Will, you got to pause you got to slow down because the first thing was this. God gave us on a silver platter something that most of us ask for numerous times in our life. How can I glorify God? What does God want from me? And here's what we read. It is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior to pray. So before we work through a deep theological issue that has massive ramifications for who God is and how is he good and how is he just and what does that mean about the lives we live, what if instead first we prayed? Which I think is appropriate because if we are going to wrestle with who is God and is he right and is he fair and how does that work, I think there's only one proper posture and that would be through humility and there is nothing more humbling than prayer recognizing that we are insufficient in and of ourselves. So pray with me if you would, and then we'll work through our text together. Father, I thank you that your word is active. It is not passive, it is not dead, it is as alive as your spirit. As we read these words, my prayer, God, is that our minds would be set on fire, our hearts, our souls, our bodies would be set on fire, that first and foremost, you would convince us of the truth of your word, and then that from that place, you would send us forward into becoming people who behold who you are and believe in your son and become everything that you have called us to be. Father, I, I thank you so much as I think through this text and read through this text that we are not left alone in this, that it is your spirit who leads and guides us. And as Stokes said, it was also on my heart, I am so grateful that as a couple of days ago, I was talking with a, a few of our missionaries, they expected to be in North Africa without another Christian there, and by your providence, there are already eight believers around them from the group of people that they are serving. God, you are good. So would you meet with us tonight? I pray for the skeptic that they would see the reality of the gospel. I, I, I pray for, for the one who is far from your grace that they would see the gift that is freely given. And I pray for the Christian that we would be reminded of the lengths that you went to to show us your love and that that would lengthen our arm of love to our fellow man and our devotion to you. And I pray all of these things in Christ's name, amen. So here's what it says, it's good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, if we are a people who believe the whole Bible, we need to think about what this is saying. Is it actually saying that God wants all people to be saved? So if we, if we kind of 
like swipe through our Bibles, here are some things that we would come across. Ezekiel 33:11 says this. God says, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And it doesn't stop there. It's not like I have no pleasure. But then he tells us what he does have pleasure in. But that the wicked turn from his way and live. So we can mark this down. We can stamp it. God does not delight in, in the punishment of the wicked. We can say that, boom, Ezekiel 33, 11. But then we also read this. This is 1 Timothy 4, and in my opinion, it's not necessarily the, the best text on this, but since we're reading through 1 Timothy, Paul is writing this to a young guy as God is inspiring him to write these God-ordained words. I just think it's neat to look at this passage because it may have come minutes after the one I just read to you. So he writes, God desires for all people to be saved, and then potentially within minutes, we end up in 1 Timothy chapter 4, and it says this. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. So, we have this sort of conundrum on our hands. On the one hand, we have a God who has made it very clear that he has no pleasure in the punishment of the wicked, that the punishment of the wicked does exist. He has no pleasure in it. He has no delight in it. He desires all people to be saved and we recognize that not all people will be saved. By the way, this is a little bit of a heavier Sunday. Welcome. If you're visiting with us, my name is Will. I'd love to meet you. I'd love to hang out with you. But we do talk about sin uh, specifically here because I think it is one of the most important things that the Bible talks about. So let me give you my goal. My goal is not to get everyone in this room on the same page theologically or to kind of close the lid to this theological issue of how is God fair and how does his will work. I think that is an unrealistic goal and would probably be spiritual malpractice on my part to try to pull that off in this setting. There are so many questions that go into this text, but this is my goal. My goal is to tee up this reality and then hit the ball as absolutely hard as we can according to God's word without, what do you call it in golf? I don't play, a slice and a draw. I, I want us to hit the ball as hard as we can without slicing it or drawing it. Am I going the right way or the wrong way? I don't know. I don't play golf. All right, thank you, Bennett. I appreciate it. So as we smash the ball on how does God's will work, this is me telling you. I would love to go hang out with you. I would love to grab coffee with you. I would love to get lunch with you. Just find me after the service and we will dig a little deeper. But I do think we can tee some things up and really make great strides. So here's the first thing that I would say. If you're a note taker, lick your pen. Here we go. God achieves his ultimate desires, but God does not desire all things equally. All right, I'll explain what I mean by this, but for now, just kind of absorb the sentence. God achieves his ultimate desires. God's will for what he ultimately desires always comes to pass, but God does not desire all things equally. Now, to handle this well, my goal is to be accurate and understandable, all right, that's what I'm shooting for, in a way that you could explain this truth to somebody else. The reason, that's, you need to know that's my goal. I want you to be able to explain this to somebody who is not in this room because so many of the conversations that I have with people who are not believers, people who are opposed to Christianity, come down to the question of, is God really good? 
If he's really good, then why this and why this and why this and why this? And for those of you who really love evangelism, you know this is a big hurdle. It's a big stumbling block for people. And so I want you to not only, I want us to deal with it accurately, I want you to understand it, but I want you to be able to explain it. So let me tell you, I thought this might be a good way to handle it. We're going to do a real quick survey. All right, you're going to have to raise your hand. There are only three options. So if I get through the first two and I haven't hit yours, just throw your hand up for the third one. Nobody's going to be the wiser. All right? My question is simply this. What version of the Bible do you prefer to read? Now, there are way more than three, but I'm going to just go with a couple that are very prominent, okay? How many of you are ESV people? ESV. It's going to be the majority because it's what I primarily preach out of. Okay, good stuff, hands down. How many of you are NIV people? This is how I grew up learning the Bible, NIV 84. I stumbled through verses because I memorized them in the NIV and then the ESV did it differently. How many of you are... CSB, NLT, NASB, whatever else, you're, you're kind of the rest. Okay, a handful. All right, if you don't know this, all of the faithful texts that we have, all the different versions of the Bible, are based out of the original manuscripts. But they're not all trying to do the same thing. In other words, that all of them are trying to be faithful to the text, but if you really want to be most faithful to the text, you got to learn Greek and Hebrew, all right? That's not what everybody's going to do, and we get that. So we have Bibles in different versions. Let me show you how they work, and this may actually help you pick out your next Bible. All right, so here is how the ESV plays out on a graph of what it was intended to do. So the, the up and down axis is how readable something is, and the x-axis, the left to right, is how literal it is. Some versions of the Bible shoot for word-for-word -word literacy. The Greek said this, so we say this. The Greek said this, so we say this, all right? The thing is, we don't speak Greek. We don't speak Hebrew. So if you shoot for that level of accuracy, you lose readability. Does that make sense? On the other hand, if you take the idea of the passage, you lose some of the accuracy, but you increase the readability. Everybody just give me a head nod if you understand exactly what I'm saying. All right, how does this do, what does this have anything to do with God's will? I don't know the best way to explain this to a diverse group of people. So I am going to give you three options, and you run with the one that sits inside the house of your heart best. If you are a high, high accuracy person, then you're an ESV type person. If you pick the wrong books of the Bible, you're like, oh no, <laughs> all good, all right? But if you're more on the readable side, go ahead and go to the next slide. That's what the NIV was built for. Now, I can go ahead and tell you, I'd bet a million dollars on this. Whoever came up with this slide was selling CSB Bibles. Because what they did was they said, but if you want to shoot the gap on what's ideal, you can go to the last one, then you go CSB. But this is my favorite part of this. I, I know they were selling them on this. You see the optimal line? This reminds me uh, of a germ commercial. You know how like when they spray and they wipe, they have to show like there's this one little germ. They're, they're like, we're going to be humble. We're going to put the optimal. We're not saying we're the best. We're just saying we're the closest to the best. How does that have anything to do with God's will? Let me explain. If I were to try to give you the most accurate way to understand the way the will of God works, I would give you these two terms. I would say God has a sovereign will and a moral will. Now, the moment I say that, some of you are like, that does not hit home for me. That seems a little complicated and a little clunky. That's fine. 
If I were to go with the easier to understand version of this, I would say God has an irresistible will and a resistible will, okay? Now, here's the downside of that one when you move to the, the, the sort of easier to understand. If you're speaking with somebody outside of this context, and you're like, God has a will that's irresistible and a will that's resistible, some folks are going to be like, what church are you going to where you're saying you can resist the will of God, okay? Now, I'm going to explain what I mean by this, and I promise you, any of you that are rational and logistic are going to nod your head with this, but you have to be careful with it. Let me give you a good illustration. When I was growing up, I was not allowed to go see rated R movies. So all of my friends went to see the movie Scream, black, like, black gown, like the white ghost mask. Do y'all know what I'm talking about, or am I dating myself too much? Okay, so all of my friends went to see the movie Scream. My mom said, Will, you're not going to the movie Scream. Here's the thing, Will wasn't 16, Will wasn't 17. So even if I wanted to resist her will, I could not do it. That was an irresistible will that my mom said, it's not happening. I'm not driving you there. I'm not paying for it. It is not going to happen. Similarly, I would be staying up late at night watching The Simpsons. John, you were there. My mom would walk by. Homer Simpson would be burping, and Bart would be getting into trouble. John leaves, and the next day, my mom looks at me, and she says, Will, I really wish you wouldn't watch The Simpsons. That was a resistible will. And I did resist that will, and I continued to watch The Simpsons, okay? One was irresistible. I could not make it happen. The other one, I knew what my mom ultimately wanted, but she didn't shut the door on my ability to do that thing. Do you see how this is playing out? All right, now, if you are somewhere in the middle, sort of the CSB, and this is how I would typically explain it, these are the words that I would use to explain God's will. God has a will of decree, and a will of desire. So there is God's decree and God's desire, all right? And that's what I'm gonna run with as we kind of walk through this tonight. But some of you, different ones of these hit with, and that's great, run with it because it's important that you understand this concept. God has a decree and God has a desire. Can I back that up with scripture? You better believe I can. Now remember, this is all based on verses three and four. God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. What do we mean when we say God has a will of decree? Genesis 3.15. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will, Jesus, will strike your head, enemy, and you will strike his heel. God, in Genesis 3.15, had a decree. This thing that God said was his sovereign will, unopposable. This was irresistible, that you and I would be born opposed by the enemy, opposed by our own desire for sin, that Jesus would come, that Jesus would die, and that his death would be the death stroke of the enemy and of sin. That is God's decree, absolutely unavoidable. Ephesians 1. 11. We have also received an inheritance in him, predestined according to the purpose of the one who works out everything in agreement with the decision of his will. Now, there are multiple things in there that we could talk about, but just notice the beginning of the verse. We, now this is, this we is talking about Christians only, okay? It's not talking about church attenders or folks who went to VBS and raised their hand. Christians have also received an inheritance, now, that is a crazy sentence. Do you want to know why? Because you don't get an inheritance until somebody dies. That's how inheritance works. 
And what this is saying is the work of Christ is so sure. The sovereign will of God is so sovereign. It is absolutely irresistible that even though you have not died yet, if you are in Christ, your, I, I forgot, your inheritance is secure. As sure as Jesus died on a cross, as sure as he was fully God, as sure as he was fully man, you have a promise waiting for you in heaven. That is how irresistible the sovereign will of God is. Let me show you one more in Daniel 4. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. Does that mean that we have no value? Absolutely not. You were created in the image of God, but he's making a contrast here. What is the contrast? All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and he, being God, does what he wants with the army of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. So it doesn't matter if it's in the realm of the spirit or in the realm of the flesh, God does what he wants. That is irresistible sovereign will. How sovereign and how irresistible? Well, he takes it to the paint. There is no one who can block his hand and or say to him, what have you done? That is irresistible, sovereign decree by God. Is everybody tracking with me? But that is not the only will that God has. He also has a will of desire. God achieves his ultimate desires, but God does not desire all things equally, which means God does not decree everything he desires. Let me, let me pause for just a minute. I know that some of the people in this room are a little bit younger, and I'm using big, deep theological words. I'm doing the best that I can to shoot that, that gap of being understandable and accurate. I think all of us are going to be able to relate to this. Don't answer out loud. When God created the garden, did he desire for Adam and Eve to fall into sin? I, I told you not to answer out loud, and then my pause was too long. All right. Absolutely not. He made it very clear, do not do this thing. This is what comes up in so many conversations with people who are questioning Christianity, and why is God this way, and why is he that way? Why? Because God's will that sin not happen is not as big. God's desire, let me put it this way, God's desire that sin be avoided was surpassed by his decree that his love for you would be made known. All right, let me explain. God did not want Adam and Eve to pick the fruit. He did not want them to turn to sin. But more than he didn't want them to sin, he wanted them to see how much he loved them. And the only way that people could understand how great God's love is if, is if we make ourselves as loveless as possible and God says, I'm still going to love you. If we make ourselves as repulsive to God, if we run in absolute rebellion to him, if we make the cost of his love so great that his son has to die on the cross, then no, God doesn't want sin. But yes, he wants you to understand how great his love is. You see that? That is how God can have a will of decree and a will of desire simultaneously. And guess what? All of us do this. We all have this. Here's how Malachi puts it. In Malachi, a dude's just trying to figure out how can I love God in the biggest way possible? What should I, uh, Malachi 6.6, 6, 
what should I bring before the Lord when I come to bow before God on high? He's like postulating, all right, what am I going to bring? What am I going to do? Should I come before him with burnt offerings, with year-old calves? By the way, this dude gets real deep real quick, all right, when he's like, what should I give to God? Would the Lord be pleased, remember this is what we're talking about, the desires of God, would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with 10,000 streams of oil? Not a person in this room owns a ram, all right, unless it's a Dodge ram. And not a person in here has streams of oil, all right, unless your essentials got way out of hand, all right, and you stop buying a little, you got the big, and then somebody, nobody, this is more like the dude being like, all right, am I going to give him from my... IRA? Do I go Bitcoin? Do I, like, he's just trying to think, what is the most valuable thing that I can give to God? It's going to get dark for a minute. How valuable should I give my firstborn for my transgression, the offspring of my body for my own sin? Now, I, leave that one up there. Uh, there. Something powerful happens on this verse in Scripture. Because most of us can relate to wanting to glorify God. Most of us can relate to wanting to please God. Some of us relate to wanting to please God because we just don't want to feel guilty ourselves. All right? But this guy is saying, man, if I gave this, what if I gave this? Streams of oil, thousands of rams, my firstborn child. He's like, what can I give to God? But the reason he's struggling to find a great enough value is because of what he's trying to pay for. You see that? He's trying to pay for his transgression. He's trying to pay for his sin. And he comes to the, rea the reality that all of us who have read our Bible should come to, and that is, I can't pay for this. If I owned everything, it would not be enough. If I was given an infinite number of days and years, it would not be enough. Mankind, he has told each of you what is good and what the Lord requires Act justly, love faithfulness, and walk humbly. And, and I'll just tell you, there's not a soul on the planet that has always acted justly. Done the right thing, in the right place, with the right attitude, and the right motivation. Hasn't happened. But maybe you feel like you've been nailing that. All right, fine. Well, we drop to the next one. What about loving faithfulness? This isn't just talking about husbands and wives. This is saying being faithful in all of your relationships. Being faithful in all of your business dealings. Being faithful to every promise that you ever made, even if it was hard to keep. And I'll go ahead and tell you, we haven't done great on that. But if you find yourself patting yourself on the back on one and patting yourself on the back on two, you have wrecked yourself for number three. Walking humbly with your God. These three pitches were intended to strike you out. And that is a good thing. Because none of us go to God unless our head is first hung low. Not rightly. Look, if you get up to the plate and you crack a home run, you're not going to the dugout with your head low. Base hit, you're not going to the dugout with your head low. Even if you get a walk. The only way we go back to the dugout with our head down is if we swing, swing, swing. And then we walk back. God intentionally threw three pitches that all of us would miss. And he asks, he asks the question, have you done what God requires? I just want to leave that for a minute. Have you, don't think about somebody else. Have you done what God requires? Here's my hope. My hope is that after reading through those texts, there's not a soul in this room that would say, yes, I have nailed it front to back year after year. I have knocked it out of the park. 
if you say no to that question, that is one of the most praiseworthy things that can happen in your life. It is the most important thing. And I would say it's page one of the syllabus of understanding who Jesus is. There was a, a guy whose name was Ben Sands. Keller, do you remember Ben Sands? You do. You just don't know that you do. All right. John and I grew up in youth group, and we had a very different uh, experience than Lexi did because we were the high school boys. And our youth pastor, Billy, somehow always beat us in basketball. It would be four on one, and I don't know how he did it. I think he's like in a wheelchair now or something because he spent all of his best years like owning us. That's not true. He's great. Um, but, but we would go on this trip to Tennessee. And in Tennessee, there's this phenomenon called the Lost Sea. I don't know if any of you guys have ever been there before. Cower, it strikes me as a place that you would like if you have not been there before. You've been there? You would like it. So in Tennessee, at the Lost Sea, is America's largest underground sea. It, it's really cool. The, the story goes that there was... a. There, there were like people who were going through and exploring the caves, but leave it to a 13-year-old to be the one who actually pushed the envelope. Ben stands at 13 years old in 1905, climbed into a cave. I don't know what he was using for a light, but he didn't have a mag light, right? No LEDs back in 1905. My history is not great. I, I know he wasn't using a flint, but I, I don't know what he had. I'm guessing some kerosene or something along those lines. So this 13-year-old dude climbs into a cave and goes through a hole about this big. He goes through mud and muck and moisture for three 300 feet. Just go there for a minute. You've got your lantern. You're in a cave. It's yay big. If that light goes out, you are not making it out of that cave until you have pottied on yourself. All right? It is a bad situation. He goes through 300 feet of dirt and mud and all of a sudden comes into a room. And in that room, he's able to stand up and water is coming up to his ankles. And when he holds up his torch, he cannot see the wall of the cave no matter how far he looks. And for years, he would tell stories of reaching down into that cold water that had never seen the sun since it trickled down through the mountain. And he would pick up these clods of mud, he would make them into circles, and throw them as far as he could, and they never hit a wall. They, all he ever heard was... A number of years later, it becomes a tourist spot. It, it's so big. Did you put the picture up yet? Throw the picture up. This is one of my favorite places. It is so large that you can get on a boat and go out on it. There are trout swimming around you. They're not native there. They put the trout in because they were trying to figure out where this water lets out. They can't figure it out. They know the water is dripping through the ceiling of the cave, through stalactites, but it has to be going somewhere because there's this air opening. And, and so they put all these trout in, and the trout never leave. And so now there are these blind trout just swimming around and propagating because they can't figure out where they go. Well, a number of years later, I think it was in the 60s or the 70s, they find this underwater chasm. It's another hole, but this hole is underwater, and they put a scuba diver through it. He goes through it into absolute pitch black darkness, not with a candle or whatever, with scuba gear. The bubbles start going up, and they hit the top of the ceiling wall, and it starts to fall down on the guy. He retreats out. They send another guy in years later with sonar equipment. He goes into this hole and starts banging his hand on the left side of the wall so that he can find his way back. And everywhere he pointed that sonar device, 
all it gave him was more water, not a single wall. To this day, they have no clue how big this chasm is. I tell you this because it is one of my favorite illustrations of understanding the gospel. If we are going to come rightly to Christ, we crawl way further than we want to, way more uncomfortably than we want to, through more darkness than we would desire, in fear of if we will actually make it to the other side. And it is through that mud that we pop out into this clear, wide open space and we realize that all along God had been leading us down this path to show us his mercy and to show us his grace. But it doesn't stop there. Because once we have made it into that chasm, God says, come on deeper, come on further. And his grace and his mercy just widen, and they widen and widen to the point that none of us will ever know the depth of the mercy or the love of God. And that is for you and I who have miraculously failed God. We've hit some heavy theology. Let me just give you a real quick education on that muck that we crawl through. The Bible tells us that there are three ways that we have failed God. Most of us think of one, the word sin. But the Bible doesn't use the word sin only to define what has happened to us. There are three words, and David gives them to us in Psalm 51. And here's what it says. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgression, that's one. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, that's two. And cleanse me from my sin. Now, before we go from here, I just want you to understand, those three words in verse two are the way that the Bible defines all of the ways that we have failed. All of the muck that we have to crawl through, all of the darkness that we have to crawl through, and all of the uncertainty that we have to crawl through. But the Bible is specific for a reason and this to me has brought so much encouragement i want you to look at this again go ahead and do the breakdown bruner i just want you to notice how david comes to god not that not that where we broke the verse up um your your my 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 yes Look at how David thinks about his sin and his hope. The first thing that we have to understand is the truth of our situation. And he is straight up with it. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your love and your mercy. It, I understand the truth that I am a sinner. That's doorway one. That first chasm that we walk through is truth. That's why Christians have to be a people of truth. We cannot be shy about truth. Because if we don't walk people through that first doorway that we have truly sinned, they never get to get into that second door, that second chasm where we seek mercy. And that's what he does. He says, blot out my transgression." Wash me from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. And I love this. I, I'd never realized this before. Isaiah 53 is the passage that promises a Messiah. Promises a Savior who can deal with all of our brokenness. And I had missed this. Transgression is a word for breaking someone's trust. If you were a Hebrew and somebody broke into your house and they stole something from you, they were called a thief. But if they knew you, if you were their neighbor, they weren't just a thief, they were a transgressor. They had stabbed you in the back. That's how the Bible refers to us. 
As people who have transgressed, we have stabbed God in the back. We have stabbed one another in the back. Iniquity means a crooked behavior. The Bible uses the term when it talks about a road that isn't straight or easy to navigate. And what's fascinating about this word is it's not just saying that you and I live lives that are broken and crooked. It uses the same word when it talks about the consequences of that brokenness. And it says that our back is bent over. The way that we live is bent and crooked, and so the weight of our sin makes us bend and crook over. And then the last word we're all familiar with is sin. It means to fail or to miss the goal. It's actually used in the Bible in ways that are not moral. The Benjaminites had 700 slingshot dudes who were left-handed. Don't know why they needed to be left-handed, but that's just what the Bible says in Judges chapter 20. And it said that with their sling, I can't even do it that way. With their sling, they could throw a rock and cut a hair off of a guy's head. Can you imagine being that dude? It's got to make it in the Bible. Go stand over there. You're like, 700 seems like a lot. Can we like take turns? Can we rotate in and out? How's this going to play out? When it says they can't miss, it says that they do not sin. It's the same word. And when you think about stabbing in the back and a burden that bears you down and missing the mark, this is who the Bible says Jesus is before he ever came. Isaiah 53, 5. But Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. Jesus is stabbed in the back because we are a people who stab each other and God in the back. But it doesn't stop there in talking about our Savior. It goes on and it says, He was crushed for our iniquities. He was bent over with the weight of sin because we are bent over in the weight of our sin. When we are in sin and have not repented, we have offended God or offended someone else, we feel the weight of it. You were designed for that. You think your conscience is is a form of evolution? It's one of the worst evolutionary things you could have in Darwinianism. A conscience should have been the very first thing to go. Why does it exist? Because God built you to feel the weight of your sin. And yet, who is Jesus? He's the one who is crushed because we put burdens on ourselves. That's why Jesus can look at the people and say, take my yoke upon you. My burden is easy. My load is light. Yours is not. If only there was something that talked about sin and us missing the mark. And lo and behold, Isaiah 53, 6, the very next verse, all we like sheep have gone astray. We miss the mark. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isn't it amazing that in all of the ways we fail, Jesus takes it on himself. That is a good savior. And that is a God who has a desire and a decree that no matter how broken people are, they can be made right with him. One of the most amazing things to me, I, I, we had a, a, a Roots membership class this morning, and um, we, we were sitting in there, and we were talking about sin and the gospel and all these kinds of things, and I was just sharing with them. Stokes and I have talked about this so many times. It amazes me that in, in just a minute, we're going to sing a couple of songs, and we're going to get up, and we're going to go get in our cars, and we're going to leave. And when you go to walk to, the dry, to, to your car, there are going to be cat clouds floating in the air doing exactly what God created them to do. There are going to be birds that are singing their songs doing exactly what God created them to do. Breezes cutting through the leaves of a tree doing exactly what God created them to do. You 
and I are the only things, not even on earth, but in the whole cosmos of creation that has stepped away from what we were designed to do. We are the only ones who do that. And the Bible goes so far in Romans 8 to say that creation is groaning and longing for things to be made right. It's almost as though when you and I walk through the world, let me just read verse 19 to you. This is Romans 8, 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. It's like all of creation is looking at us and saying, really? But you created them in your image and they're the whole problem? And creation itself is irritated with you. It's irritated with me. It goes on. For the creation was subjected to futility. That means life was made hard for the world, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. We brought sin in. We're the only piece of creation that doesn't do what we were created to do. And that is why punishment not only makes sense, but it must exist. Otherwise, God must not be holy. If we truly have missed the goal, if we've fallen short, transgressed, pick your word, God can ignore it and be caring. He can ignore it and be involved. Bottom line, biblically, philosophically, and logically, if God were to rescue one person for all of time, it would be absolutely unusual, scandalous, and immeasurable mercy. The fact that there is anyone in heaven outside of God himself is crazy. The fact that some of us will see each other there is far crazier. But that is the beauty of the gospel. Verse 5. There is one God. There is one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself, this is what we just sang, as a ransom for all. The word all. I, I probably listened to this verse more times than I can count. We were going on a long trip, so I wasn't able to read, so I was just listening and listening. And it blew me away that the word all comes up five times. God so much puts on display that the cross is fully inclusive. Anyone can come to Christ. And these words in that day would have exploded off the page. That the, so much so that the Apostle Paul, do you see this in verse 7? For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. Paul has written so much stuff. And yet after this one thing, he's like, no, seriously. I, I, I'm being for real. Like, God wants to save all people. The question is, are all people willing to walk through the muck and mire of their own sin? To hang their head as they walk back to the dugout. Because if they will, there are chasms of grace that are immeasurable, that are just waiting on them. But there is one door. There is one cave. There are a million caves you could take. But there is only one that you're going to make it to the end before your light goes out. There is only one that you're going to make it to the end before your oxygen gives out. And that is the path of Christ. John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Richard Baxter puts it this way. Let your heart yearn for your ungodly neighbors. Alas, there is but a step between them and death and hell. Many hundred diseases are waiting, ready to seize on them. And if they die unregenerate, they will be lost forever. Have you hearts of rock that cannot pity men in such a case as this? Do you not care as long as you are saved? And that is Columbus 
Georgia. That's Harris County. Do you not care as long as you make it? If so, you have sufficient cause to pity yourselves, for it is a frame of spirit utterly inconsistent with grace. If their houses were on fire, you would run and help them. Will you not help them when their souls are almost at the fire of hell? This is the problem of sin. And this is something that every one of us that has ever thought about God has had to run into. Is God really good? Does he really care? Why not just create a world where sin doesn't exist? Why not create a world where sin exists but rescue everyone? And the answer that the Bible gives is this. God put an apple on a tree not because he wanted people to sin but because he wanted them to see that there are no lengths that he would not go to to rescue those who have. And whether we like it or not, God says, my glory is more important than your comfort. Me receiving the apex of glory is more right than eternal condemnation is wrong. Because he has created all things. And he has created all things that he might be in relationship and display his love to us. So here's my question. And the only application. Have you recognized the truth? It's what we're supposed to find. Desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Do you know that you haven't met God's requirements? If you haven't, what are you doing about it? Because there is one path and that is Christ alone. If you have gone into that second chasm and your feet are covered with the cool moisture of the glory of God, that his mercy has been given to you, are you willing even to go through darkness, difficulty, and peril to yourself to go into that final chasm? Where not only do you know the truth of needing mercy and the, the, the truth of seeking mercy, are you willing to take it? That's the question of this text. Do you love Jesus enough to love him Lexi, do you love Jesus enough to love him if it costs you your life? Do you love him when it's dark? Do you love him when the oxygen begins to give out? Because if you will pursue him with every piece of you, you will only find greater chasms of mercy and greater chasms of grace until one day every one of us is swept up into the shore of eternity. Where there is more darkness, there's no more fear, there is no more shame, there is rejoicing. Because those who were made like God are now with God. Because God loved them in spite of themselves. That's what God calls every one of us to. Let me pray for you. And then let's worship that God. Father, if there are any in this room who are hearing the reality of the gospel, the fact that you want us more than anything else, first and foremost, to understand the truth that we have failed. But it is not because you desire that our heads would be bent low. It's because you desire that we would crawl toward you so that you would open up to us the chasms of your mercy and grace. That we would find refreshment, that we would find hope, that we would find purpose, that we would find meaning, that we would find joy. And then that we wouldn't just stay there, that we wouldn't just sit there, but that we would recognize that you don't just desire, but that you decree that your word will fill the earth, that every nation will hear, that every tongue will confess, that we would go and make disciples of all nations. Father, would you call every one of us who is claiming the name of Christ to take seriously your decree and your desire? 
that we would be men and women, boys and girls, who live more for Jesus than anything else. And Father, may that not be a duty. May it be our delight as we get to see the face of our Father and do the very thing for which we were created. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you would go ahead and stand up and we're going to worship together. If you would like to receive prayer, if you need to talk, I'm going to be on that side. Jimmy and Anne Marie are going to be on that side. We would love to pray for you, encourage you. If you have any questions, come and find me. We love you guys. Let's worship a God who is worthy of worship. It is what you were created to do. So let's do it well.